Thomas Beckett and London. This reminds me of a story a primary school teacher told, and I can't resist telling you, uh, told me recently that she had a class of small children and she was talking to them about uh, the murder of Thomas Beckett. Henry II says, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And the two knights rush out and jump on their horses. And then the king changes his mind and sends another horse, uh, horseman after them, try and stop them and fails. Miss, miss, says a very small child. Why didn't he just phone them up on his mobile? <laughs> but it's a more serious uh, event this evening, a more learned one. And uh, please give a very warm welcome to Professor Caroline Barrett. Well, thank you very much for that welcome. Thank you all for coming this evening. And before I start, I would like to have a few words of thanks. Firstly, I would like to thank the Mercer's Company for their hospitality this evening, and particularly to Mike Dudgeon, Wing Commander Mike Dudgeon, for his meticulous organization of this event to the last minute, I should say. I think it's his military training, very unlike the academic world in which I normally inhabit. I would also like to thank the other members of the Beckett Committee, and in particular to Dr. Dee Dias, who's here this evening, because it was she who rang me up about two years ago. I had never thought about Beckett in London, his anniversary, and persuaded me to become involved. And I would say about Dee, who's a wonderful person, I actually wonder whether she's actually one person or six, because when you, she always works by telephone, and I think that's because she has a whole troop of people who are actually dealing with things. She's an amazing person, and we're very grateful to her. And finally, I'd like to thank my colleagues on the Historic Towns Trust, and in particular, Professor Vanessa Harding and Giles Darks, who have together worked on the two maps. So you'll be seeing a lot of these maps this evening, and they are outside, and they are, in a sense, the creation of Beckett's world. And that is what I'm going to talk about tonight, and we're going to start by looking at this um, image. Uh, I don't know which you think the more handsome. <laughs> On the left, we have uh, Thomas Beckett from uh, the glass at Canterbury Cathedral. And on the right, you have Richard Burton in the film, uh, 1964 film, Beckett, based on Anouilly's play. And uh, I remember seeing that. I actually was rather more a Peter O'Toole man and favoured Henry II, but he looks pretty good there. But you can see they've got the same mitre. Um, now, for, I think we should, I should start with Thomas Beckett, because after all, but for Thomas Beckett, we none of us would be here, sitting here this evening. And I know many of you know about Beckett, but for the few of you perhaps who don't, let me just recount a little bit about his life. As the provost said, he was born... 900 years ago, here in London, probably somewhere on this spot, in the year 1120. His father was named Gilbert. His mother was Matilda. They came originally, or their families, from Rouen in Normandy at the wake of the Norman Conquest. They owned considerable property here in London. Uh, Gilbert did. And he was very successful. He was sheriff of London. It's worth remembering that at this period, London didn't yet have a mayor, but they had gained the right to elect their own sheriffs. Gilbert was a sheriff. In the city, there was a fire in 1133, which seems to have burnt a lot of property, including 
a lot of Gilbert's property, so the family fell on hard times to some extent. And uh, in about 1140, when the young Thomas would have been about 20 years old, he was employed in the uh, office of one of the uh, a new sh another sheriff called Osbert Huitdenier, which I think is wonderful, eightpence, Osbert Eightpence, who was sheriff of London. I expect now you have to have more than eightpence to be sheriff of London. And so in effect, Thomas becomes a civil servant. He, then he moves on to join the household of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald, who's de, uh, 1138 to 61. And that was a glittering intellectual circle. The, the uh, household of the Archbishop Theobald was a place to be. It had a number of very able people in it, including a man named John of Salisbury, who was very famous and wrote a book called The Polycraticus. Thomas himself was in minor orders, and he attracted the attention of Henry II, and in 1155, Henry chose him to be the royal chancellor. He then moved, therefore, into the service of the king, and uh, he was said to be both extravagant and ostentatious, not like civil servants now, you understand. And what, what, but the reason Henry chose him was because at the time, there was a considerable conflict between church and state. Uh, to simplify, maybe, there were two, two things that were of concern, perhaps particularly. The first was the fact that the, uh, the, the church, as it were, was flexing its muscles under the Gregorian reform movement and reasserting a lot of authority over areas where kings had been used to exercising their own authority, including the appointment and choice of higher ecclesiastics, and the church said, no, we should choose them. And the king said, no, he wanted to choose them. And then there was the question of who should invest the cleric with the ring and the staff, the, sim the sim spiritual symbols of office. And the church wanted to do that, wanted churchmen to do it, the king wanted to do it. That was the investiture contest that you heard about. The other issue was about what's called criminous clerks, whether clerks, churchmen, who committed offenses and were tried in special church courts should then having been convicted, be moved on to a lay court. And the church was resisting that. So these are the sort of issues which the king was hoping when he appointed Becket as the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1162, he hoped that Becket, who'd been his chancellor and a ostentatious and extravagant, would support him in uh, resisting and challenging the demands of the church. However, he was wrong, as you know. Becket chose instead to defend the church, right or wrong, and came into serious conflict with Henry. He went, uh, when their conflict couldn't be resolved, in 1164, he went into exile in France. And he remained in France until 1170. He then, there was a sort of fragile compromise was made between the king and Becket. Becket returned to England and uh, immediately um, excommunicated some of the king's servants, so that was very provoking, which provoked Henry to say those famous words, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest, or this turbulent priest, and so the four knights rode, and unfortunately Henry didn't have a mobile phone, so he didn't phone them up and say, I've had a better thought to come back, and so in, on the 29th of December, 1170, well on the day before they confronted Becket, and then they came back again, perhaps having had rather too much to drink, and they murdered Becket. And that dramatic death, 
the murder of an archbishop in his own cathedral in front of the altar was produced a widespread reaction, not just in England, but throughout Europe. And, you know, I thought an interesting parallel would be, I think, the shock caused by the death of Princess Diana in 1997. The same kind of European response, a horrified response. And uh, interestingly, the British Museum exhibition, which is opening in October, is going to, I think, emphasize the European dimension of the Beckett story and the the aftermath of Beckett's murder. Um, now, what I want to do is to think about the impact which Beckett had on his native city. Here is the map of medieval London, actually in the year uh, 1300, so about 100 years after Beckett's death. And, um, but we, Beckett, in a sense, is the inspiration for this medieval map. And you can see here, I'm going to talk about three areas of London where he had a particular impact. London Bridge, the Hospital of St. Thomas in Southwark, and of course here, St. the Hospital of St. Thomas on Cheapside. Many lives of the saint were written, uh, but I'm going to focus on one in particular. That is the one written by William Fitzstephen. Uh, as Beckett had been a young clerk in the household of Archbishop Theobald, so Fitzstephen was a young clerk <clears throat> in the household of Beckett. And he describes in the life he later, wrote, he later wrote, he describes all the tasks that he carried out for Beckett. He did not, however, follow Beckett into exile uh, in France, but he was with him in Canterbury, and he actually witnessed Beckett's murder. He didn't himself... Well, obviously, he didn't get killed, but he was there, and he actually saw what happened. And the first uh, impact, or the first consequence, I think I want to draw your attention to, of Beckett's murder for London, was this life written by William Fitzstephen, because he begins that life with a eulogy of London. And it's... Um, it's not a topographical description, but he does describe, if you look, he, says, he does say something about the religious houses. He says something, he says there were 120 parish churches in London. He, he mentions the tower and at the east, and the gardens and the springs and the rivers, which you can see on that map. And he says there was a school at St. Paul, there were three schools, he says, at St. Paul's, at Holy Trinity, at the northeast by Aldgate, and at St. Martin's, north of St. Paul's. He talks about the ships on the Thames. He talks about the wine that you could buy. He talks about the cookshops. He says, if you have a friend who comes and you haven't got anything to give them to eat, you can go out to a cookshop and get something ready cooked, a sort of McDonald's of the 12th century. He talks about the horses in Smithfield and a skating on the frozen fields of Moorfield in the winter and fighting and bear baiting and of the market and of river sports. He describes how there were fights in boats on the Thames and people would try to knock each other out of the boats. It's not a description about how London is governed. It's not about how merchants made money, although there are some references to trade. But what it is, is an account of what it was like to be a young man in London, alive, uh, educated, enjoying sport, food, horses, fights, and games. In fact, it's so vivid, it's a remarkable account. 
In fact, when I first read it, I thought it must be a Victorian forgery. But actually, I've, there are medieval manuscripts of this account. And this remarkable account, which actually, if you, on the back of our medieval map, the 1300 map, we've got uh, account, the, we've printed Fitzstephen's account of, of London in translation in English. But, but for Beckett, we would not have that extraordinary account of what it was like to live in London in the late 12th century. So that's the first legacy of Beckett is Fitzstephen's life. The second is, the, is London Bridge. And this <clears throat> is the bridge ring, and there is the reconstruction of London Bridge as it was built in the late <clears throat> 12th century. There was already and already had been a wooden bridge in, in London since Roman times. But uh, what is new is that this is the first stone bridge across the Thames. And it was built, or the idea it's associated with a man called Peter of Colechurch, who was the priest of St. Mary Colechurch, the little parish church which was just here on the site on Cheapside, which of course was the parish where Gilbert Beckett had his houses and where Thomas Beckett was born. And Peter was said to have begun this stone bridge in 1176, that's six years after the murder of Beckett. He may have been the architect, more likely he was the fundraiser. He was the sort of development director for London Bridge. He's sometimes called the custos or the warden, and sometimes he's called the procurator or the steward, the steward of the monies and the lands given to support the work of the bridge. There were guilds uh, associated with the bridge clubs, sort of fraternities, to raise money for the project. And it, it was begun, it may have been begun before Beckett's death, we don't know exactly when it was begun, but the decision to dedicate the chapel, which you can see uh, halfway along the bridge, to Beckett, was a brilliant idea of the development director because it meant that offerings, this tremendous outpouring of enthusiasm for Beckett after it, were poured into the chapel and helped to support the very costly enterprise because actually building a stone bridge across a river which is flowing faster than is tidal was an extremely difficult task. And, but for, in fact, Peter of Coldchurch died in 1205 and he was buried in the chapel on the bridge. And um, I'd like to show you a picture of the reconstruction of the bridge, which has been done and is published by the London Topographical Society in their recent publication uh, last summer. And you can see uh, the, the bridge. This is taken, obviously, from, from Southwark looking towards the city. And the chapel, we don't know actually what that original chapel was like. That is a, a guess, as it were. But that reconstruction is done by Dorian Gerhold in, and I think it's a remarkable piece of work. And it shows you the bridge, and you see those, uh, they look like large shoes. Each of the piers of the bridge has a sort of wooden protective uh, coating, which is called a starling. And this was to protect it from the rushing tide. But of course, what it really did was to make the, the water rush yet more uh, much faster through the bridge, which made the traveling on a boat through the bridge quite hazardous. And Peter of Coldchurch, I, I think it's, you know, the fact that he was the priest of this ch uh, church, this is where the Beckett family were, and then he is associated with the bridge. It may have been his idea 
to bring the Beckett and the London Bridge enterprises together. And this is the seal of Peter of Co-Church, uh, <coughs> which um, says this is, it's quite interesting, it says it's the seal of Peter the priest, you can see written around in Latin, of the Bridge of London. So on his seal, he associates himself closely with London Bridge. So what I would suggest to you is that without the added impetus of Beckett's martyrdom and the flow of support which, to the bridge and to the chapel which followed, the bridge might have taken longer to complete or might never have been completed. But the bridge was crucial to London's prosperity, this stone bridge, and as you know, it lasted until the early 19th century. So that's the second impact of Beckett's death. The next one, the third impact, and we go back to the map. Oh, no, sorry, that's the bridge. Sorry, that is the seal of London Bridge. And you can see uh, it's very damaged. It's the best one we have. But you can see the, an arch of the bridge with a boat underneath, and above it is seated Thomas Beckett as uh, a bishop with his mitre and holding his staff. The third impact is the hospital of St. Thomas in Southwark. And here is an enlargement of that section of London <clears throat> in Southwark. We don't know the exact date of the foundation of St. Thomas's Hospital. It's allegedly founded by Beckett himself, but I think that's probably unlikely. But by the 11, late 1170s, Gilbert Foliot, who was the Bishop of London at the time, who didn't get on very well with Beckett, I'm afraid to say, um, but had to come round once Beckett became a saint and a martyr. Um, he specifically states that the hospital was being built in honor of God and blessed Thomas, the martyr of London in Southwark. Uh, originally, the hospital was just um, here, south of, on the sort of nestling up against the south side of St. Mary Overy Priory, but there was one of those many London fires in 1220, and so the hospital moved, and it moved to the, here, uh, as you can see, on the east side of Southwark High Street. It was a house of Augustinian canons, uh, like St. Bartholomew's Hospital, or indeed St. Mary's Bishopsgate, and they had brothers and sisters. Of, the Austin canons were a comparatively new order in the 12th century, and they were essentially founded to have a more social dimension, not like the Benedictines who retired and, and lived within enclosed lives. The Austin canons tended to have a social responsibility, which is why many hospitals were actually run by Austin canons, Augustinian canons. So the new hospital in Southwark, dedicated to Thomas Beckett, was, I would say, the third, if you like, of the legacies of Thomas Beckett. The fourth was this house of... Oh, sorry, I keep forgetting the seals that I put in. This is the seal of the hospital of St. Thomas in Southwark, and you can see, again, it shows Beckett as a bishop with his crozier. <coughs> and then we move on to... The, the fourth legacy, which is the house of St. Thomas of Acre, which is where we are now. And you can see there it is ringed, and we'll show you an enlargement of that hospital. This is the hospital as it was 
in the year 1300, or roughly. It's on the site of the property which had belonged, as we know, to Gilbert Beckett, Thomas's father. Uh, we don't know exactly the, the early history of the site and the hospital. It seems to have remained a private house until sometime after Thomas Beckett's death in 1170. It passed then to his sister Agnes, then to her son, or possibly her nephew, who was called Theobald of Hellis, and then by the 1220s to his son, who was called Thomas of Hellis. And the uh, order of St. Thomas of Acre was established in Acre in 1191-2 in the course of the Third Crusade. The Third Crusade is the one, of course, as you know, led, well, one of the leaders was Richard I, the Lionheart. And on that crusade, apparently, there was <clears throat> a shipload of uh, crusaders coming from London to join the crusade, and they were caught in a storm on their journey off the east coast of Portugal. And Thomas, St. Thomas appeared to them and said that if they would repent, the tempest would cease. So not surprisingly, they did repent, and the tempest did cease. And in Richard I founded a chapel dedicated to St. Thomas at Acre in 1192. And the order that ran that hospital was the Order of the Hospitaller Knights of St. Thomas of Acre. And they were founded a bit later in 1220, focused around that chapel and in Acre. And they followed the rule of the Teutonic Order, and they had this house in Cheapside, was then given to the order by Thomas of Hellis in 1227 to be a house of the Order of St. Thomas of Acre. And they ha we have a seal. And I have to say, I'm quite excited because I found this seal just about when I say I found it. I came here into the archives of, I'm sorry, it's rather uh, hard. I think you can see it better on that slide. This is the seal of the hospital, sorry, of St. Thomas of Acre. It's on a document actually of the early 16th century here in the archives in Mercer's Hall. And I hadn't seen it. I was very excited. I came in to see something else and there it was. And that's what happens in research. Occasionally you strike it lucky. And you can see, I hope you can see that St. Thomas is seated on the right-hand side of the seal and he is handing a cross to one of the Crusader Knights of the Order of St. Thomas. So that's the fourth legacy. The fifth legacy is, in some ways, almost the most, I think, extraordinary. This is the city, the common seal of the city of London. Uh, this is the reverse of the seal. It, we, we know it was made somewhere late 12th, early 13th century. It's first referred to in 1214, but it may have been existed before then. This is the period when London is gaining its, its autonomy. It, uh, it's first referred to as a commune in 1190. It gets a charter from King John. I like the, the Londoners go to King John in May 1215, just before Runnymede, and they, they get from him a charter which allows them to elect their own mayor. And they get this charter, <clears throat> and more or less because John gives it to them because he hopes they, they will support him against the barons. In fact, they get their charter and they support the barons against John. Um, anyway, this, and then, at about that time, they devise their common seal. And the obverse of the seal, this is the reverse, the obverse shows um, <coughs> St. Paul 
above the city on this sort of arch with the city beneath him, with the water gate and the Thames flowing along. It's an amazing piece of engraving. And uh, on this side, you again have the city with the forest of spires underneath the feet, and you have St. Thomas, again as an archbishop, and you have two groups of Londoners on either side. And what is, I think, I mean, it's a most remarkable, it's about, uh, well, it's a bit larger than a two-pound piece, but not a lot larger than that. The skill of the man who engraved that must be extraordinary, or might have been a woman, I suppose, but anyway. And it shows, as I say, Thomas seated as an archbishop, and the inscription, which is around the edge, says, me que te peperi, ne keses toma tuere. You who brought me birth, brought me forth. Sorry. It's addressed to Thomas. So, Thomas, who, we who brought you birth forth, do not cease to protect us. So, it's, a, it's the Londoners addressing Thomas. It's a very unusual inscription to have on the, the edge of a seal. And it's worth perhaps noticing that the seals I've shown you of the bridge, of the Thomas of Acre, of the common seal here, show Thomas as an archbishop seated. They do not show him being martyred. And in London, it's interesting, unlike the seals in Canterbury, which often show him the martyrdom, in London, that's not what they're emphasizing. They're emphasizing the fact that Thomas was archbishop and he was their protector. Now, if we move on, what happens to the impact of Thomas after these initial, if you like, legacies in the late, 13, late 12th, early 13th century? Um, in the first place, the bridge uh, is changes. It ceases to be a brotherhood and a religious enterprise and becomes, in effect, an uh, organ or a, a department of city government. But in the late 14th century, the chapel that I showed you, which we don't know what it was like, was rebuilt by the master mason, Henry Everly. And Henry Everly designed and paid for this chapel, this new chapel, on London Bridge. And here are some drawings of it in the 18th century. You see the west front there, and you see its position on the bridge. And here's an, the west front again and the interior. Uh, it makes it look much larger than it actually was, obviously. Um, and the, the accounts of the bridge show that offerings in the chapel continue, but at a fairly modest rate. So you, you wouldn't, if you looked at the offerings in the chapel, you wouldn't think the cult of St. Thomas was particularly vibrant in 14th and 15th century London. The, the Hospital of St. Thomas, interestingly, develops a particular characteristic as you probably know, Southwark was on the south side of the Thames, became the area where um, activities that the city of London didn't want to take place within the walls were banished. So t tanning and smelly activities and, of course, prostitution, and there were brothels. And uh, the Hospital of St. Thomas seems to have developed a particular uh, concern, what we might call a maternity ward, because in 1294, for example, money was spent by the hospital on curls and fuel for women lying in childbed. And Henry Everly, interestingly, again, in the late 14th century, 
made a gave a bequest to the hospital to build a new aisle uh, where the poor patients lie. He doesn't specify that they're women. But a 15th century chronicle of London, written by a man called William, well, not written by William Gregory, but attributed to him, interestingly records this about Richard Whittington, another mercer. I shall say a bit more about him in a moment. And it says, that noble merchant, Richard Whittington, made a new chamber with eight beds for young women that had done amiss in trust of good amendment. And he commanded that all the things that were done in that chamber should be kept secret on pain of losing their living. For he would not shame no young woman in no wise for that might be cause of her losing her marriage. That's a remarkable, it's the only reference we have to the fact that Whittington or his executors spent money on building, in fact, a maternity ward at St. Thomas's Hospital for unmarried women. We have no images, at least none that I know of, maybe some of you do, of that medieval hospital of St. Thomas. And what happened to the hospital of St. Thomas of Acre of the Order of the Teutonic Knights? By the 1320s, since the Holy Land had been largely lost to uh, the West, the order severed its links with the Holy Land, and the head of the order, instead of being in Acre, was established here in Cheapside. And the order had financial problems, and the city investigated its affairs. And in fact, what happened was that the order gave up being of the order of Teutonic Knights. It gave up its military pretensions and adopted the rule of St. Augustine, became a house of Austin canons, like St. Thomas's or like St. Bartholomew's. But clearly they were, at this period, developing links with the Mercers in Cheapside because the Mercers were working and settling in Cheapside. And I think that, that association between the Hospital of St. Thomas and the Mercers probably dates to the early or mid-14th century, but in fact the first documented reference is in 1391 when the Mercers recorded using the Hall of St. Thomas of Acres for their feast. Uh, a lot of building went on uh, after that. Uh, the church uh, was developed. It became much larger. Uh, there was a school established here. The music flourished here, which is good because we're going to be hearing good music here later on. And many Londoners chose to be buried here because it was a very prestigious place to be buried. The merchant adventurers based their, uh, their company, if you like, here, dedicated to St. Thomas. And that, of course, is a close association with the Mercers. And in 1509, possibly earlier, the annual feast day of the Mercers Company was transferred from St. John the Baptist, which is the 29th of June, to the feast of, as the master mentioned, to the feast of the translation of St. Thomas, which is the 7th of July. And the Merc in 1514, the Mercers Company became the official defenders and advocates of the master and brethren of the St. Thomas's Hospital. So you might say there was a sort of takeover going on, I think, with the Mercers taking over the site of the hospital. And again, I've got no image of that medieval hospital of St. Thomas. But while uh, these not very exciting, perhaps, developments are going on in the, the hospital, the bridge, and St. Thomas Acre, one interesting development is that in the city of London, they, obviously it was decided that the Beckett story was a bit apart from the ending, which after all didn't happen in London and so it wasn't quite so, so good. So what they 
decided to do was to, as it were, improve on the story of Beckett. And so a new version of the Beckett story comes into being. And in this version, Gilbert Beckett, his father, is a crusader. He takes the cross. He's captured in Jerusalem by the emir, whose daughter falls in love with Gilbert. So she's the, the Saracen daughter. Uh, Gilbert escapes back to England and doesn't take her with him, which isn't very gentlemanly of him, but she follows him nonetheless and arrives in London, and the only word she knows <clears throat> is London. And uh, she makes her way around London, and she passes Gilbert's house, which is where the hospital is now, and she's recognized by some of the servants who were with him when he was in the Holy Land. And so she's recognized, and Gilbert is a bit perplexed as to what to do, and he goes to consult six bishops. And they um, give... <laughs> They prophesy quite conveniently that he should marry her because their offspring will be a saint. So she is duly baptized in St. Paul's Cathedral by six bishops, which is quite an undertaking. She marries Gilbert and she produces Thomas. And this, uh, imp and then the life continues as in the form which we know it. So this um, improved version of the life of Thomas Beckett first appears in the life of Edward Grimm, or the, uh, written in the early or mid uh, 14, 14th century, 13th century, sorry, in the 1240s. And the story was very popular. It's translated into Middle English verse, and it's uh, also in prose. And there are some nice illustrations of it in the, what is called the Queen Mary Psalter in the British Library. And I'll show you those. Here, it's interesting, the, the Psalter is a Latin text with canticles and psalms and so on, but at the bottom of the page, as if, you know, if you find the psalms and things a bit boring, you can look at this interesting life of the saints. So there are other saints whose lives appear at the bottom of this. And here we have, uh, you see, she is arriving in London, there she is, and there are uh, Beckett's servants recognizing her. Uh, and then... There she is being baptized. Uh, and then this is their marriage. And finally, look, there's the birth of Thomas lying in a cradle. I think that's a very charming picture and gives you perhaps an idea of what uh, <coughs> babies and the, the, the housemaid or the nurse wearing an apron and the mother lying beside him. Anyway, that is the jazzed up version of the life of Thomas Beckett. And we know that that was the most popular version because we don't have any texts of um, pageants in London, but we do know that there was a pageant in London uh, on, based on the life of Beckett in the year 1519. Because we know about that, not because we have a text, but because in the accounts of the Skinner's Company, um, we have payments for various aspects of that. For example, uh, we should say that in that year, the master Skinner was a man called Thomas Murfin, and the fact that his name was Thomas, he chose to have a pageant of Thomas during his mayoralty might be significant. And so we have references in the accounts to things like paying to Thomas Bakehouse for playing the martyrdom of St. Thomas with all its properties, both nights, three shillings and fourpence. We paid a man, this is interesting, for playing the Jewess. 
So the Saracen mother, by 1519, has become a Jewess in this story, which is interesting, and he gets paid three and six, but slightly more. Perhaps for a man playing a woman, you get paid a little extra. Uh, Richard Matthew, for playing Gilbert Beckett and his clerk, was uh, paid to six men to bear the pageant prison for Gilbert Beckett. So obviously they had Gilbert being imprisoned in the Holy Land. Now, so this fanciful story of Beckett, uh, and the, the cr crusading father and the Amir's daughter and so on, it seems, it's interesting, exists in London alongside the, as it were, traditional story. Uh, and it's worth saying that that is... Uh, based on that pageant, there will be a pageant next summer, in June 2021, uh, again, supported by the Skinners, which uh, will be a modern version, in some way, of the Beckett story. The second development in the course of the later medieval period is an interesting development of the role of Beckett in civic pageantry. John Carpenter, and I want to... He's a very remarkable man, John Carpenter. <clears throat> you probably all have seen this picture. No, this comes again from the Mercer's archive. It shows Richard Whittington on his deathbed. It's from the ordinances, the <coughs> ordinances of his almshouses, about 1440. So it's, it's after Whittington died in 1423. And you can see uh, the alms people crowding at the, on the right-hand side, you can see the doctor holding up a urine sample and, and trying to assess it, I suppose. Whittington lying on his deathbed. And the four uh, executors of Whittington uh, with their names written on them. Grove, you can see, uh, is the one on the right. Behind him, the man with the tonsure is John White, who was master of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, but died quite soon after Whittington. And then on the left, John Coventry, who was a mercer. And the key man, I think, is Carpenter. Do you see in the front left. John Carpenter was the, uh, the common clerk of London, the town clerk of London, and he was, in my view, the leading intellectual of London in the early 15th century. And he wrote this uh, compendium of London custom, which is called the Liber Albus, the White Book. He wrote it in 1419 when Whittington was mayor of London. He says he did so with the encouragement of Richard Whittington. And in this compendium, he says that on the morrow of St. Simon and St. Jude, that is the 29th of October, it was the custom for the mayor and aldermen to ride to Westminster to swear their oath to the Exchequer. They then would ride back into the city, and then Carpenter says that it was the ancient custom, which often means I've just thought of it, but that's the way they described it. It was the ancient custom that after dinner, for the mayor to go to the house of St. Thomas in Cheapside, so here, with the liveryman, with the alderman, and then to go on to the church of St. Paul. And after praying in St. Paul, they would move into the churchyard of St. Paul, where lie, he says, the bodies of the parents of St. Thomas, late Archbishop of Canterbury, where they would say a de profundis on behalf of all the faithful departed, near to the grave of Becket's parents, they would then ride back through Cheapside to the house of St. Thomas, and they would each make an offering of a penny. Now, just one thing, I mean, that's, we've all thought, well, Beckett's parents were probably not buried in sports, but there's one thing, they may well have been buried there, because the house of the, sorry, the church of St. Mary Cole Church was a very small church, and it had no churchyard. 
And the churches in medieval London that had no churchyards, if you couldn't be buried in the churchyard, you were buried in St. Paul. So it's possible that Gilbert Beckett and Beckett's mother, Matilda, were buried in the churchyard of St. Paul's. Whether their tomb was still visible and, 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 and recognizable by the early 15th century, I'm not sure, but it's not entirely without foundation. But I think it's John Carpenter who formulates this ritual of the mayor riding to St. Paul's and so on. Um, so I suppose, apart from the development of the Saracen mother story, and apart from John Carpenter's attempt to incorporate Beckett into the ritual of the mayor's election and, well, taking his oath, if you look at other signs of popularity of Beckett in this late medieval period, they're not very noticeable. For example, if you look for fraternities, these popular clubs based on worshipping or, or paying attention or lighting a candle to a particular saint in a parish church or an image, I, you collect these references in wills when people leave money to a particular fraternity or image. Or, whereas for John the, Thomas Beckett, we have, I found six references to fraternities at this period, but for John the Baptist, there are 18, St. Catherine, 23, St. George, 14. So Beckett's not the most popular saint in late medieval London by any means. And an indication is that in the 1440s, the altar at the east end of the north aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral, which was in the new work, which had been dedicated to St. Thomas, was changed to a dedication of St. George. So you can see St. George was becoming the up-and-coming saint, and Thomas is, not, uh, is in the decline. And we might look at relics. Um, in, we know that in the temple church, uh, well, it, it was claimed that they had the sword with which Thomas was killed. Actually, there were quite a number of those swords around, actually, as relics. Um, and here I'm showing you some of the pilgrim badges uh, which people collected when they went, as we presume, to Canterbury. Uh, and these ones are based on the sword that, I have to say, the sword in the temple church. I don't know why I thought it would still be there but I was disabused of that. They said we haven't had it for a long time. But the uh, badges are there, and indeed you can go and see this wonderful exhibition of all the numerous pilgrim badges in the Museum of London, which is on at the moment. Um, and I'm not going to talk particularly about pilgrim badges. It's a very interesting subject. Anyway, that is a pilgrim badge based on the putative sword that killed Thomas Beckett. And you get uh, two parish churches have references to relics in their uh, relic in their inventories. And in St. Paul's Cathedral, the in the inventory of 1295, lists a staff or a crozier, but rather cautiously, they say, said to have belonged to Thomas the Martyr, and a crystal vase containing two pieces of his skull and some hair and some clothing. Okay, so finally, what happened at the Reformation? Henry VIII proclaimed in 16th of November, 1538, that uh, he issued a proclamation, and it, was, it had two purposes. Firstly, to stop the Reformation in its tracks, to try to limit and to resist the multiplication of text in English and the, as it were, proliferation of Protestant ideas, and also to erase 
all images of Thomas Beckett. So two simply uh, interestingly contrasting purposes in this single proclamation. And he says that for as much as it appeareth now clearly that Thomas Beckett, sometime Archbishop of Canterbury, stubbornly to withstand the wholesome laws established against the enormous deeds of the clergy by the King's Highness, most noble progenitor, King Henry II, for the Commonwealth rest and tranquility of this realm, of his forward mind fled the realm into France and to the Bishop of Rome, maintainer of those enormities, to procure the abrogation of those laws whereby arose much trouble in this said realm. And he goes on to argue that Thomas Beckett provoked his own death by insulting and attacking the knights. So he says that appeareth nothing in his life and exterior conversation whereby he should be called a saint, but rather esteemed to have been a rebel and a traitor to his prince. Therefore, his grace straightly charges and commandeth that his images and pictures through the whole realm shall be put down and avoided out of all churches, chapels, and other places, and all services, festivals to be erased and put out of all books. And it's amazing how in London they carried out that to the letter, well, removing the letters. There are references in Churchwarden's accounts to um, paying people to break the glass and to repair it to remove St. Thomas. St. Mary Magdalene Milk Street paid Roger Rogerson 12 pence for raising out of Thomas Beckett of the church's books. And interestingly, I noticed the other day that in John Carpenter's account in the Liber Albus, the word saint when he's describing this procession to St. Paul, has been crossed out, though Thomas Beckett has been left. And the Brewers' Company, the Brewers' Company were quite cunning. The Brewers' Company had a funeral pall. And this funeral pall, which they still have, um, in their accounts, Thomas Beckett was one of their patrons. So they had a problem. So they paid a glazier sixpence for, I quote, setting a picture of St. William in place of Thomas Beckett. Now, St. William was an Archbishop of York in the early 12th century, also a saint, so you don't have to do very much if you just replace Beckett with William. So he's replaced in the glass windows. They paid two shillings for scripture of St. William, set in our hearse cloth. Now, there's St. William. Can you see at the bottom there? And then there's writing on either side. There's an enlargement of it. And can you see that they've unpicked the name Thomas Beckett at the bottom there? And I can show you an enlarged. It's, it's hard to see, and, but they were blowed if they were going to have to get rid of that very elaborate. So they just say it's St. William instead of St. Thomas. And they, but on the other hand, when they had to repaint their banners, they paid 13 and 8 pence to a painter for putting out of Thomas Beckett in our banners and setting in St. Thomas the Apostle. <laughs> and and the, city, the city of London itself had to think what to do about their common seal. They didn't rush to do it. It took them a year before they made this decision. But on the 28th of September in 1539, it was decided in, for as much by common council, for as much as the common seal of this city is made with the image of Thomas Beckett, late Archbishop of Canterbury, and all such images ought by the King's Highness Proclamation to be altered, changed, and abolished within all his dominions, 
It is now established that the said common seal shall be altered and changed and the arms of the city to be made in the place of the said Thomas on the one side and the image of St. Paul uh, was, was left on the other, on the uh, obverse. So there you can see the old seal and you can see the new seal, not nearly such a fine piece of work, but with the city arms replacing St. Thomas. And two years later, the Common Council agreed to change the seal on the bridge. And here you have the old seal of London Bridge with Thomas seated above it. And on the left, you've got the bridge with it. Do you see the city arms? Sorry, it's a, a damaged version, but there you can see the city arms above London Bridge. However, the, and the, the, the bridge house, it was decided the bridge wardens already had paid a painter uh, to, to deface and mend the pictures of Beckett in the chapel, and they found an embroiderer, it must have been a busy time for embroiderers in this period, unpicking the work of their predecessors, and they converted their embroidery, which depicted the martyrdom of St. Thomas, into the image of Our Lady. I'm not quite sure how they would have done that, but that's how they did it. And they also uh, converted the chapel, it was defaced and turned into an ordinary house. St. Thomas's Hospital in Southwark uh, was surrendered to the king as a religious house, like any religious house was. And it was in the hands of the Court of Augmentations. In August 1551, Edward VI granted the site and some lands back to London to serve as a hospital. And in November 1552, it admitted its first patients. And the dedication was changed from St. Thomas Becket to St. Thomas the Apostle. And as you probably know, it was in Southwark until the middle of the 19th century when it moved to Lambeth. And here, interestingly, I don't know if the Mercers know, but they made a contribution, apparently, in uh, <clears throat> 1898 of £10,000 to the work of the Hospital of St. Thomas the Apostle in Lambeth. And finally, we look at this building here, or this site here. This is the house. Here is, now we've moved on to, away from the medieval map of London to the map of Tudor London, early 16th century. And here you can see again the house of the area of St. Thomas of Acre Ringed. And here is the enlargement of the area as it now is with the hospital and the Mercer's Hall. And that is the property which the Mercer's took over. The imagery of the, um, in the hospital of St. Thomas of Acre, there was a, a friar or an apostate friar called Robert Ward who <clears throat> left his friary and got married and became a real sneak. And he went around reporting on superstitious practices to his master, Thomas Cromwell. And he reported that at St. Thomas of Acre Church on the previous Sunday, while he was listening to the sermon, which he clearly didn't pay much attention to, on the north side of the church, he said, I spied certain windows wherein was pictured the life of St. Thomas, especially a superstitious and popish resemblance in the absolution of the king of that time. There were divers monks portrayed with rods in their hands, and the king was kneeling naked before a monk as if he should be beaten at the shrine of St. Thomas. Well, the house itself was surrendered to the crown in 1538 as a religious house, and <clears throat> the Mercers decided they needed to buy that property. And 
that was a very expensive, it cost them nearly a thousand pounds, with a lot of money in the early 16th century. And I was amused to see that they had difficulty in raising the money, and in order to get enough money, they raided the St. Paul's School chest and took out of it nearly 300 pounds to help to pay for purchasing the site of St. Thomas of Acre. But the school continued, I expect they paid it back in due course. So. But that was, they were really pushed to get the money to buy that site. So, finally, here is the <coughs> plaque, which is on the building here. I'm not sure when these blue enamel plaques were put up in the city. I think it's attractive, very attractive actually, but I'm sure that English heritage would never have let them say anything quite so quaint as in a house near this spot. It sounds sort of, sort of casual to me, but anyway, um, that plaque is still there. So I want now to conclude. I would suggest to you that Thomas Beckett had a considerable impact upon his native city in the years immediately following his death in 1170. But the dramatic events of his life happened in Canterbury, not in London. And Londoners seem to have visited his shrine at Canterbury in large numbers, if we can judge by the pilgrim badges, but his cult in London never flourished greatly. So in spite of the addition of the Saracen mother and the crusading father to his story, and in spite, I think, of John Carpenter's efforts to incorporate St. Thomas into civic ritual and consciousness, I think the exciting lives of St. Catherine of Alexandria and St. George seem to have proved more compelling to Londoners. And then the Royal Proclamation of 1538 led to the wholesale removal of all the images from buildings and books in London. But William Fitzstephen pointed out in his life of Beckett that St. Thomas had adorned both Canterbury and London. Canterbury by his setting and London by his rising. And I think 900 years since his birth, it is time to celebrate St. Thomas in his native city. Thank you.